In July of 2002, 19-year-old Russell Turcott was on his way home to Montana from a rainbow gathering in the Ottawa National Forest in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He had stayed behind a few days after the gathering to clean up the mess that had been left behind. With his friends already back home in Montana, Russell decided to hitchhike back. Upon reaching Grand Forks, North Dakota, Russell would call his mom to have some money wired so he could ride the train the rest of the way home. Russell would never pick up the money, and it wouldn't be until November of 2002 that his horrific fate would be discovered. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 26, The Murder of Russell Turcott. Hi lovely listeners, my name is Lisa Marie Imray and I am the host of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast, where each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and talk about any kind of true crime story. So if you are interested in true crime, which I bet you are since you're here listening to this amazing podcast, or you like drinking coffee, then feel free to give Coffee and Crime a listen to. It is available on all major podcast platforms. You can also find Coffee and Crime on Facebook or Instagram, where the DMs are always ready for you to slide in with your thoughts and feelings, recommendations, or anything true crime related. So until then, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap. And I will catch you guys over at Coffee and Crime. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast, and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. I would also like to take this moment to thank my amazing patrons, Laura, Katie, and Teresa. Lastly, be sure to check out Miss New Zealand herself, Lisa Marie Emery, with the Coffee and Crime podcast, whose trailer you just heard. She covers a multitude of cases and does fantastic work. Now, with no further delay, on to today's episode. Russell Douglas Turcott was born October 25th, 1982, in Wolf Point, Montana, to William and Linda Turcott. The youngest of five children, William had two older brothers, Jacob and Michael, and two older sisters, Amy and Blythe. Russell was of indigenous heritage, with his father William being a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa in North Dakota, and his mother Linda being a member of the Assiboney and Sioux tribes. Russell grew up in Wolf Point and Haver in Montana. During this time, he would attend elementary school in Wolf Point and Haver, spend two years in the Billings school system, his freshman and sophomore years in Wolf Point, and would graduate from Haver High School in May of 2001. Not much explanation is ever given to the rapid changes, 
but it would appear that Linda and William separated at some point. As Russell's obituary indicates, he was living with his father in Haver the last two years of school. Russell has been described as a free spirit with a hippie nature, who was fond of tie-dye shirts, playing the guitar, and skating. During his teenage years, he would work at the Albertsons grocery store and the Taco Time restaurant in Haver. In high school, Russell would take part in boxing for a short time. In the Montana Murder Mysteries podcast, William Turcott would tell the story of how he and Russell went to a Golden Gloves boxing tournament in Spokane, Washington. Russell won the tournament, but afterwards he would give up his boxing gloves, telling William that he didn't really like punching people and he didn't want to hurt anyone. True to his Montana roots, Russell was also a lifelong member of the 420 Fish and Hunt Club, and upon graduating high school, Russell would enroll in the firefighting school and spend a summer fighting Montana wildfires. An all-around caring and loving soul, his mother, Linda, would tell the Grand Forks Herald in 2021, quote, Russell was a very kind soul. He believed in kindness, and he believed in people. He was a very trusting person, and he was always shocked at times, simply, when he could find out the people could not be that nice. In the summer of 2002, Russell was gearing up to attend a rainbow gathering in Michigan. Rainbow gatherings, per Wikipedia, are described as temporary, loosely knit communities of people who congregate in remote forests around the world for one or more weeks at a time with the stated intention of living a shared ideology of peace, harmony, freedom, and respect. Russell had attended a gathering the year before, and this time he would set out with friends to the Ottawa National Forest on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where that year's gathering would be taking place from July 1st to July 7th. When the gathering was over, Russell's friends would drive back to Montana, but Russell would opt to stay behind and help clean up the mess that was made by the event. Russell would then plan to simply hitchhike back to Montana. According to reports and family, Russell would stay with a friend in Minnesota and then hitchhike as far as Fargo, North Dakota, where he would run into Darby Parsons. Darby had met Russell at the gathering. Darby would spot him hitchhiking and invite him to stay the night with her family. The next day, Darby and her father would take Russell to the interstate leading to Grand Forks, North Dakota, and Russell would continue his journey from there. It's unclear on what day this occurred. However, the official timeline has Russell in Grand Forks on July 12th. And assuming Russell got a ride, we can probably guess it was somewhere around July 10th to the 12th that he was in Fargo. According to the official timeline, Russell was in Grand Forks by the end of the day on Friday, July 12, 2002. His whereabouts for most of the day are widely unknown. It is known that at approximately 10.30 p.m., Russell stopped at a mini-mart near Highway 2 and Interstate 29, where he purchased a bottle of water. This would later be confirmed by surveillance. At approximately 11 p.m., Russell would call his mother Linda and ask her to wire him $75 so that he could get a train ticket home. Russell was due to be in a wedding for one of his best friends in the coming weeks, and he wanted to return to Montana sooner rather than later to ensure that he could make the wedding. Linda informed Russell that she would wire him $100. However, it was late in the evening and she would have to go to the bank as soon as it opened in the morning. After this phone call, it's known that Russell walked to the Simonson truck stop 
located right on the highway to exit off of Interstate 29. A waitress would confirm serving Russell some coffee and would tell investigators later that he seemed to be just passing the time. She would also state that he had asked for directions to the Northland Rescue Mission located at 420 Division Avenue in Grand Forks. The next morning, Linda would wire Russell the $100 as promised, only Russell would never show to collect the money. Linda would soon become concerned when the money was not picked up and she then failed to hear from Russell at all throughout the day. The day would turn to night, and the morning would come, with still no word from Russell. At this juncture, it had been too long since last contact for Linda, and she called the Grand Forks Police Department. According to Linda, upon hearing Russell's age, the dispatcher merely laughed and advised Linda to wait a few days. Furthermore, the dispatcher informed Linda that, despite the fact Russell went missing in North Dakota, Linda should report him missing to the Wolf Point Police Department. Linda, understandably upset by this response, would contact Russell's older brother, Jake. On Monday, July 15th, Jake would drive to Grand Forks to search for his younger brother. Along the way, he would stop in every town and community he went through to see if anyone had seen Russell. Reports state that upon arriving in Grand Forks, Jake went to the police department and upon attempting to file a police report, was told that he should return in a few days. Jake would then go to the local newspaper and news stations, with his mother doing the same in Montana. News stations in Montana and a station in Grand Forks would agree to air Russell's picture on the news. After media attention, and two attempts by the family, Grand Forks police would finally take notice, and a nationwide all-points bulletin would be put out for Russell. Although, Wolf Point, where Linda initially had to have a report taken, would still be the lead investigating agency on the case at the time. Aside from news media showing Russell's photo, his father William and Russell's brother Jake would spend weeks displaying photos and missing posters everywhere they could between Wolf Point and Grand Forks. The coverage and photos would garner at least two phone calls, one from an attendant at the Mini Mart where Russell purchased the bottle of water before disappearing, and the other from Darby Parsons, the young woman that Russell had met at the Rainbow Gathering and had given Russell a place to stay before he headed to Grand Forks. In an October 2, 2002 article from the Grand Forks Herald, it was announced that Texas EcuSearch would be coming to Grand Forks to help search for Russell. Texas EcuSearch is a volunteer search group who utilizes horses, four-wheelers, boats, and planes to assist in searches for missing persons. The group was started by Texas native Tim Miller, who, after his daughter was abducted and murdered in 1984, began helping other families to search for their lost loved ones. After years of assisting by himself, he started Texas EcuSearch, a group which still operates to this day. Miller had been contacted by a member of the Turcotte family after a few leads had been garnered in Russell's case. On the topic of few leads, Wolf Point Police Lieutenant Jeff Harada would tell the Grand Forks Herald, quote, We have attempted to follow up on every lead we've ever had. Unfortunately, there haven't been many. Grand Forks Police Lieutenant Dennis Eggerbrotten would add that it had been hard to search for clues in Grand Forks when absolutely none had turned up. On October 12th, the Grand Forks Herald 
would publish a letter to the editor from Russell's mother Linda. Normally I wouldn't read one of these in full. However, I do believe, for the sake of clarity on Linda's behalf, I think it's best to read it in full to proper convey the frustrations of Linda and the Turcotte family. The letter reads as follows. I read the article published about the story of Texas EcuSearch traveling to Grand Forks to search for my son, Russell Douglas Turcott. I feel that I need to relay how the family feels and how we came to the decision to conduct the ground search for Russell. My son has been missing for 88 days. It has been pure anguish, not knowing if he is hurt somewhere, if he is dead, or if he is alive. I have spent days sitting by the phone, hoping he would call. Russell has missed a lot in these past 88 days. He was to be the best man in the wedding of his friend, Mike Dunning, on August 3rd. Mike did not get a call saying, Hey Mike, I can't make the wedding. The day just came and went. Russell didn't call his dad on his birthday, September 3rd, or send a card. Again, the day just came and went. The decision to conduct the ground search was one that was not made easily. It was made with considerate thought, and some say it is an act of desperation. We have asked all his friends if they have heard from him. They have not. I called Leah, a friend of his whom he stayed with in Brainerd, Minnesota, prior to traveling to Fargo, and then on to Grand Forks the next day. I questioned her on his state of mind, and she said he was anxious to get home. We spoke to a girl named Darby in Fargo, where Russell had stayed the night before arriving in Grand Forks. She told us Russell wanted to get home, as he was to be the best man in his best friend's wedding. So, to our knowledge, his intent was to get home. We have had flyers up and down U.S. Highway 2 and Interstate 94, passed out flyers to truckers who travel the interstates, reported him missing with the National Missing Persons Organization, News stories have been printed in Montana, North Dakota, and Minnesota, but nobody has reported seeing him or received a phone call, letter, or postcard from him. The last place he was physically seen and heard from was in Grand Forks. We took all of this into consideration, and it brought us back to Grand Forks. This is not a trip I am looking forward to. I am searching for something that I do not want to find. We are not saying that foul play has occurred. Any number of things could have happened. He could have fallen and hit his head, or gotten hurt somewhere and not been able to move. These are all possibilities. If we do not find anything in Grand Forks, we will continue to search elsewhere. Where? I do not know. But at least we will have eliminated that something happened to him in Grand Forks. Then, we will regroup and continue to take measures to find my son. Yes. It could be considered an act of desperation, but desperate we are to find out what happened to him. The not knowing is very debilitating. On October 18th, the hunt for Russell by Texas EcuSearch would commence. Eleven members of Russell's family would make the 12-hour drive to Grand Forks. Linda, while present and appreciative of the search efforts, would lament that she almost hoped nothing would be found. Telling the Grand Forks Herald, quote, I don't have any expectations. I hope I don't find anything, because if I find something, I know it's not going to be in a good way. 
Over three days, volunteers with Texas EcuSearch, as well as local law enforcement agencies, would search on foot through the high grass and wooded area around the Simonson gas station where Russell was last seen. Searchers also took ATVs along the Red River, while other search team members walked along Interstate 29, checking culverts and tall grass. They also looked through Stratacorp, a 50-acre yard behind the Simonson gas station that contained concrete recycling piles and machinery. An aerial survey, as well as horseback searches, were planned. However, the brutal North Dakota winter had already began to set in, and snowfall and slippery surfaces made both searches impossible. On October 21st, the search would come to an end, with no sign of Russell to be found. Tim Miller, who led the search, would tell the media that some artifacts were found and shown to the family, but ultimately, the search was a failure. He would tell the Grand Forks Herald, quote, We found some clothing, and we brought it in, and the family would say it wasn't his. The hardest thing is, we're leaving without Russell. With the search turning up no signs of Russell, the family began to figure out their next steps. There was no way they were going to give up on Russell. It would not take long, though, before news would come, and the winters of North Dakota would begin to feel even harsher and colder. On Tuesday, November 5th, 2002, Trent Haberstrow would be looking for lost cows in an area 12 miles northwest of Devil's Lake, North Dakota, approximately 102 miles northwest of Grand Forks, North Dakota, where Russell was last seen. Haberstrow was walking through a shelter belt, a row of trees meant to act as a windbreak, when he stumbled across the body of Russell Turcott. According to reports, Russell's body was located about two feet into the shelter belt and was badly decomposed. Investigators would later conclude that Russell had been there since July or August. Trent Haberstrow would tell the Grand Forks Herald in 2012, quote, It was so covered with grass. It had been there for a long time. The grass was wilting at the time, and the leaves were off all the trees and had fallen on the body. Ramsey County Sheriff's deputies would respond to the scene and through dental records would confirm that the body was in fact that of Russell Turcott. After learning of her son's death, Linda would simply tell the press, quote, I knew he wouldn't just run away. I kept telling everyone that. It hurts so bad. Investigators would, to this day, not fully tell Russell's family the full extent of his injuries or go into the specifics of his cause of death. In a later article, Linda would state that all she's ever been told is that the cause of death was blunt force trauma. This would be one of many frustrations that the family would have with investigators, specifically those in the Grand Forks Police Department. The family would note that they believed Russell's case was not taken seriously from the get-go, and they wondered if this had to do with both Russell's quote-unquote vagabond lifestyle, as well as the fact that he was a member of the indigenous community, with William Turcott telling the Grand Forks Herald in January of 2003, quote, We wonder if they would have been as leisurely with the investigation if he were the governor's son, the mayor's son, not just some little Indian hippie from Montana. If you remember back to our episode on Larissa Lonehill, there is disparaging numbers 
when it comes to the number of missing and murdered indigenous, and when it comes to coverage, as well as investigative efforts into their cases. Also, historically, people who tend to hitchhike have also received minimal coverage and investigative focus, as they can easily be written off as probably still being on the way to their destination, or as a straight-up runaway. Combining these things together, Williams' criticism is not particularly unfounded. In May of 2003, Russell's family would return to North Dakota and visit the site where Russell's body was discovered. They would gather to honor Russell as well as pray for resolution to his unsolved murder. Michael Turcott, Russell's brother, would explain to the media, quote, We met as a family at the site and prayed together. We are Native Americans and prayed in our own way. We offered tobacco and just asked that the persons responsible come forward, or that God will deal with them in his own way. Either way, they are going to have to deal with God. William Turcott would also continue to not mince words, telling the media, quote, I don't have much confidence in law enforcement around here. He would then cite several unsolved homicides in the area, which included three other indigenous males. He would continue on to say, quote, So that doesn't speak very highly for the Grand Forks area law enforcement. No one listened to us when we told law enforcement that our son was missing last summer. I must have called Grand Forks investigators a dozen times. The family would also raise questions as to why, after getting in contact with law enforcement, Darby Parsons was never contacted, as she was the last friend of Russell's to speak with and see him in person. Jeff White, with the North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigation, would tell the media that Darby's nomadic lifestyle had made it hard to track her down. However, as she was with the family in Grand Forks at the time, they would take the opportunity to speak with her. Around the same time, Newman Outdoor Advertising of Fargo put up a billboard featuring Russell's photo and information about a $50,000 reward that had been raised by the family near the Simonson truck stop where Russell had last been seen. The board would also feature the BCI's number to call with tips or information. In later November and December of 2003, tensions would increase between the Grand Forks Police and Russell's family. On November 24, 2003, 22-year-old University of North Dakota college student Drew Shadone was walking to her vehicle, parked in the parking lot of the Columbia Mall in Grand Forks. At the time, she was speaking with her boyfriend on her cell phone. When the boyfriend heard Drew exclaim, quote, Oh my God, to someone before the call abruptly ended. This was the last anyone heard from her. On December 1st, 50-year-old Alfonso Rodriguez Jr. was arrested and charged with her abduction and later murder after her remains were found in April of 2004. While this particular case had a more than unfortunate outcome for Drew, but still resulted in the arrest of a suspect, the Turcotte family could not help but notice the difference in responses from local law enforcement. Drew was a blonde-haired, white, female college student and within 12 hours of someone last speaking to her, her case was classified as a criminal case and suspected abduction. Within a day, hundreds of volunteers were searching the fields around Grand Forks and Crookston. Furthermore, over 100 officers from 21 state and federal agencies joined in the search, totaling over 1,700 people in the search for Drew. 
William Turcott would stress that he was more than happy that Drew got the attention she got, and that it was well-deserved, telling the Grand Forks Herald, quote, It brought back all the feelings from when Russell was missing. We are feeling bad for Drew's parents, and voice our support for them, and add our prayers for them. He would go on to explain that the family's frustration was more with local law enforcement and the lack of reaction the family received when attempting to report Russell missing, saying, quote, When they reported Drew missing, law enforcement was right on it. That was great for the family, but it never happened for my son. They didn't respond at all. It bothers me that we never got that courtesy or response. They just acted like he was this little hippie kid who wandered off. Lieutenant Brian Sieber, with the Grand Forks Police Department, would explain that because of Drew's final words on the phone, they knew there was an urgency to the case, and that the fact they were able to track her cell phone movements made it easier to jump into action. He would go on, though, to state what I personally find to be an illy-worded remark, saying, quote, She was young, female, and attractive. She was shopping at a mall we all use. This could happen to any of us. Russell was a young man who was last seen at a truck stop that I would assume many of the people in Grand Forks use. His disappearance and murder could have also happened to anyone. Only I don't think if he disappeared from a mall parking lot, there would have been any more urgency than what police showed before in his case. But I digress. Russell's case would continue to sit quiet for a short time, until 2005, when a person of interest by the name of Joseph Edward Duncan entered the picture. In July of 2005, Duncan was arrested in Idaho after being seen with a missing 8-year-old girl by the name of Shasta Groney. In May of 2005, Shasta and her 9-year-old brother Dylan were reported missing after their mother, 40-year-old Brenda Groney, their 13-year-old brother Slade, and Brenda's boyfriend, 37-year-old Mark McKenzie, were found dead in their home in Idaho. Their cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma. After Duncan was arrested by police, it would be discovered that Duncan had killed Dylan. His remains were found two days later. And then I apologize that I did not do this earlier, but quick trigger warning for the children. According to reports and evidence shown in trial, the two children were tortured and repeatedly sexually assaulted by Duncan. Through interviews and investigation, it was also discovered that Duncan had murdered 10-year-old Anthony Martinez from Beaumont, California in 1997, as well as Sammy Joe White and Carmen Caballas in 1998 in Washington State. Ultimately, Duncan was sentenced to death under a federal court, as well as was sentenced to 11 consecutive sentences for the murders in California and Idaho. He passed away in 2021 from brain cancer, which was probably still a more peaceful death than he deserved. Now that we have this sick asshole's history out of the way, I can circle back around to Russell and how Duncan became tied to him. While awaiting trial, the FBI began searching through Duncan's home and files in order to try and build a paper trail of where Duncan had been and hopefully identify any more potential victims. Reports at the time would indicate that Duncan was in North Dakota during the time of Russell's abduction and the family was asking the FBI to look into a connection. In 2022, William Turcott would reveal to the Montana Murder Mysteries podcast that Duncan wasn't just in North Dakota at the time. The FBI found receipts indicating that he was at the same Simonson truck stop in Grand Forks at the same approximate time 
that Russell Turcott was. To this, William would state, quote, What are the odds, mathematical odds, of two killers being at the same truck stop at the same time? Two completely disconnected killers. Not two people working together in a cohort of some sort, but two completely separate killers. Joseph Duncan is the killer. If they can place him there at the same time as Russell, that's enough for me. There's no possible way that you could have two different killers. If it wasn't Joseph Duncan, there had to be another guy there that was a killer. Because Russell was never seen again. Somebody took him that night, and possibly killed him that same night. He either got in with them, hitchhiked a ride, and got murdered, and... I don't know. But the odds are just too damn high for it to be someone other than Joseph Duncan. I mean, they're astronomical for there to be two different killers in that little truck stop. Aside from proximity, the fact that Russell was bludgeoned to death was a comparison to the cause of death in Duncan's victims. People would note, though, that Duncan mainly targeted young children, with the only known exception being Brenda Groney and Mark McKenzie. However, they were murdered as a means to abduct Brenda's children. To this, William would note in several articles that Russell was very young-looking for his age, noting that in one of his final photos, he did look like a little boy. Ultimately, Joseph Duncan was never named a suspect in Russell's case, and his potential involvement was the last major news update that we've had in years. In the years since then, there's been a few articles taking a retroactive look at the case and taking new interviews with family members, but no new information has been revealed in that time. In terms of Russell's case and theories regarding it, there's really not much to go on. Seeing as Joseph Duncan is the only person ever named to have even the slightest connection to Russell, we will start with him. In a way, I have to agree with William Turcott that it seems unlikely that two criminals with that violent of a nature would be in the same truck stop at the same time. The truck stop is on the crossing of two major state thoroughfares, though, so it's not completely impossible, but at least it is highly improbable. I do have to also admit that I find it unlikely that Duncan would confuse Russell for a small child, given the travel-worn state Russell was most likely in, and the time of night that he was at the truck stop. But, while Duncan was known to primarily target children, it's known he was more than capable and willing to murder adults, if need be. Given this, we do have to entertain the fact that the two very well could have met, and whether through coerced abduction or the guise of giving Russell a ride, the meeting turned violent, and Duncan murdered Russell, before disposing of his body. The only other theory is that Russell met with foul play at the hands of a yet unknown individual. Given what we do know, we can speculate that he was either forcefully abducted from the truck stop, or was promised a ride by someone and met with foul play. The thing I find the strangest is if that he found a ride at the truck stop, one would think he would have called home to tell his mother to hold off on the money transfer, as he would no longer be in town to collect. There is, of course, the chance that he would have been walking to the rescue mission, or was offered a ride to it, and whatever happened, happened during that time. Unfortunately, unless the culprit is apprehended, we'll never know for sure. This July will mark 21 years since Russell Turcott, a young man who loved people and loved his family, a man who gave up boxing because he didn't want to hurt people, and who risked his life to fight wildfires 
in the Montana country, was mercilessly and violently taken from this world. In this time, his family, who clearly loved him beyond what any of us can know, never gave up on their efforts to find him and have never given up hope that he may one day receive the proper justice he deserves. They've held on to that hope, even in the face of the indifference of law enforcement. I think most of us know that even had they taken Russell's disappearance seriously from the beginning, he was never going to receive the attention that Drew Shadone did. There were a number of factors in her case that painted a clear picture of an abduction and ways to trace her location. That being said, I know there is a stigma around hitchhiking, especially when you get into the 21st century, where even in 2001, it had become less common. It's easy for law enforcement, or anyone for that matter, to brush off a disappearance as someone just being on the road somewhere and being hard to find. At the end of the day, though, hitchhiking is risky business. And I don't wrong anyone for doing it, including Russell. He was merely doing what he needed to get home. There is an uncertainty to go along with it, though. An unknown danger level that does put the hitchhiker at a higher risk. This alone is why Grand Forks Police could have taken Russell's disappearance a bit more seriously. He wasn't just a kid freely traveling the country. He was trying to get home. He called his own mother and asked her for money so he could ride the train the rest of the way home. The fact he neither called his mom afterwards and didn't pick up the money should have been enough to raise some eyebrows. Instead, Linda was laughed at and told to file a report in her own town, somewhere Russell hadn't been for quite some time. If her report had been taken seriously, I don't know that extensive search efforts would have been made, but at the very least, an officer could have been sent out to the places Russell had been known to be. Maybe someone at the truck stop would have had a fresher memory and something that could have helped save Russell's life, or at the very least, find the person who murdered him could have been given to police. And a family wouldn't have to be left wondering to this day. I guess now we'll never know if it could have been different. Everyone should be given the courtesy of their concerns for their missing child being taken seriously, no matter what their lifestyle. The last news article I found of Russell's case was in the Grand Forks Herald in March of 2021. I'm going to end with the same quote from Linda Hansen, Russell's mother, that the article ended with. Quote, He believed in people. He believed in the world. He was a good kid. He was well-loved. Very loved. If you have any information on the murder of Russell Turcott, please contact the Ramsey County Sheriff's Office at 701-662-0700. If you're looking for further information, the Grand Forks Herald and the Montana Murder Mysteries podcast, done by KHQ-TV, were the most useful resources I had. The podcast contains interviews with William Turcott, and I highly recommend it. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relative to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches, and more importantly, 
helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.